for monetary gain, you probably don't start in the food and beverage industry. Mm. So I don't know if that's probably ever been. I think it's more of a passion for the craft of what we do. Hey friends, welcome back to the Black Diamond Podcast. This is your host, Eric Malzone. And this is the show where I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing entrepreneurs, founders, change makers, and people who are just creatively leading the way through innovation. And it's not only about successes and and great stories, because you'll definitely get those, but it's also about the personal challenges and the vulnerability that we face along the way. So this show is brought to you by Level 5 Mentors, helping entrepreneurs and founders achieve the highest levels of freedom in five different categories, time, money, relationships, health, and purpose. And if you want to find out how you're doing in those five categories, we got you covered. We got a survey for that. Just go to level5mentors.com forward slash survey. And you can take the free entrepreneurial survey and see how you're doing in each category and see where you have room for improvement because, hey, we can always be improving. So welcome to the show. Let's get on to it. We are live. Lisa Clotier, welcome to the Black Diamond Podcast. Hello. I'm excited to have you. I'm a big fan of your whiskey and your vodka and basically everything that you make with Whistling Andy. And I've actually didn't know until one of our conversations a few months ago that you also own a few restaurants down in Big Fork that I love. And for people wondering who are outside of Montana, these are all places, these are, well, you can get Whistling Andy everywhere now, I think, but we'll talk about that. But these are location specific to the Flathead Valley in Montana, where both Lisa and I live. And yeah, you do good work. I love it. And I'm really excited to have you Thank on the you. show and, and talk about all the things that you do as a business owner and entrepreneur here in this great state of Montana. So I think one of the good places to start, Lisa, is just give us your story. How'd you get to be a business owner? How'd you get to be an entrepreneur? What happened? Okay. So you guess it sounds like a million years ago, but about 26 <laughs> years ago when I graduated from uh, college back East, I grew up in Montana, went to prep school and college some of high school, some of prep school back east, but most mainly in Montana. Came back after college to spend the summer and ended up getting into the restaurant business. About a year later, bought my first one, which was the Raven. Leased that for about 10, 10, 12 years. And then after that, actually bought the property. And part of buying the property was across the street. They had a low-income housing, which we ended up making into an eight-room boutique hotel. So that was kind of my first interest into the restaurant thing. We also, I ran restaurants at Eagle Bend Golf Course back in the day, Sabo, some different ones, but the Ravens kind of always been my, my baby and the one I started with for sure. And then from there, about 10 years ago, we opened up Whistling Andy Distillery and that has been more of a passion with my husband and wanting to be able to craft something in the state of Montana and then being able to turn around and sell it to the world. And also in the process of that is that we're supporting something that we believe pretty adamantly in, which is not only the American farmer, but of course for us, the Montana farmer, because we've watched them go through, oh, so many trials and tribulations. To me, that's probably the most admirable profession out there. So watching what the farmers do. And so we turn around and try to support them and agriculturally through our restaurants and through the distillery. So kind of a focus on egg for sure. And then two years ago, we opened up our, I guess it'll be two and a half years now, opened up our farm to table restaurant, which is Bonfire down in Woods Bay as well. So that was kind of where I started and where we're at now. So I've got two restaurants, a little hotel, and Whistling Andy Distillery. Awesome. Yeah, Bonfire is excellent as well, I might add. Really enjoyed the bartenders there. Really cool people. Yeah, they're, 
they're really, we've got a, we've got a really neat team. Yeah. You know, I'm curious, I want to dive in this a little bit and I don't, uh-huh. I know you're not, you know, in the farming industry, but it sounds like you kind of know you work with them and you advocate a little bit for them, not officially, but what, what are, you know, if you look at educate us a little bit, what, you know, over the last 10 to 20 years, what are some of the challenges that farmers have seen? Cause I don't think people really understand or know, um, or have been educated on it. I think at the end of the day that we've, we're so far away from where the, for so many people, we're so far away from how the food's actually being grown that when they're looking at these large format farms, which happened in Montana from your corn to your soy, et cetera, et cetera, they're dealing with commodities. So as things are going up and down on the international scale, as hard as they can do, if they can plant everything perfect, if they can farm everything, it's not like they're guaranteed the same amount of profit or a profit at all year to year, quarter to quarter, month to month. So the variables that are in there are huge on the, you know, on the large scale farming. When we look at our small local farmers, we use a variety of different ones at the restaurant. Western Montana Co-op is one that is kind of a neat situation for Northwest Montana. They've reached out to a ton of different farmers in the northwest part of the state of Montana and then they deliver directly to restaurants so we're able to use a lot of different farmers and then we do whatever we can to support Pam up at Purple Frogs and Whitefish because they're working really hard to try to bring the food to us that we want all I think that we should be eating and that we want to be serving for sure in the restaurants I mean the quality is just and you know hopefully at this point everybody's had a tomato out of the garden versus out of the grocery store and they're just two different products and so I think some of the challenges the farmers have are probably our distribution and the unknown of the seasons. I mean, they have a really early cold snap in the middle of September and there goes their tomato crop that they could have maybe had for another three weeks or whatever it may be, or it's a late growing season. We had a low season this year for cherries and apples down on the East Lake shore. So I think the seasonality, they just deal with so many more challenges than most of us are dealing with. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's hard to put yourself in in the shoes of the farmer. I mean, it's not just a business, it's a complete lifestyle, right? It's a lifestyle. I mean, they wake up and I mean, if it's hailing out today, that can ruin, you know, eight months of work versus yeah. the rest of us are like, oh, that's super annoying. Right. It, right. And it's not, you know, it's so we got a dent in the windshield or whatever it may be. I mean, for a lot of people, their livelihoods depend on something they have absolutely no control over. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I'm, I'm going to educate myself. I'll actually look into getting a couple of farmers on the show too, because I like to learn about it and kind of educate the public on it as well. You know You've got some amazing ones up in Whitefish, some amazing, amazing farms. Yeah, who, who would you recommend? Um, I would give Pam at Purple Frog. She's old school, does everything really cool. Two Bear Farms is really fantastic as well. Awesome. But right. um, Raven's Ridge, yeah, there's, you're chock full of great farmers up there. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, you know, I think... One of the things, and when I hear you talk, you have your restaurant bar, you have a hotel, you have a distillery, you have a farm-to-table restaurant. How? (laughs) How how do you do all these things? I mean, it's not like like any one of these are really non-time-consuming businesses. I mean, I've known restaurateurs, they work, you work very hard, right, to make those things happen. Uh, How do you balance four businesses and one which is actually you know you know whistling in and we can talk and i'm curious to learn about that but you know you're distributing now how, yes. how do you balance all this some days i feel like i do a fantastic job but i think the other you know six days of the week i'm like oh my god are the wheels gonna come off it's <laughs> more than anything you know making sure i'm trying to get better at delegation you would think after 25 years i would be excellent at it it's not really my 
it's not my forefront thing, but I'm getting better and better. How do I do it every day? I don't know. I guess we get up. We don't take a lot of time off. Unfortunately, you know, I love what we do for a living. So a lot of, you know, up until, you know, the last eight to 10 months, we were traveling fairly extensively around the country, around the world for that matter as well. And so I was taking three or four days at the end of every trip to, you know, spend time in Tokyo to go see things in Taiwan, da, 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 wherever we were at. And I think at this point, we kind of, we spent the summer working almost every single day and they're long days. So it's, you know, we're a good 10, 12 hours into, it's a lot of time and effort versus as things start to slow down, we close down the restaurants for a couple of weeks during for the election period and to give our staff a little break. Now it's kind of time to refocus, to take that time and hone in on like what needs to get fixed. We had a ton of staffing issues and problems at the Raven that we don't ever want to go through again. And so setting ourselves up for a really successful 2021 season is important and taking that time to maybe step back and be like, okay, here's the mistakes. Here's the successes. Here's the wins. Here's the losses. What do we do to improve everything? And I think I mentally always am trying to be like, okay, what's the next step that will make the businesses better and make this the best place to work? And so the Raven's a challenge because of what happened this summer with COVID. We had a lot of angry customers that that it was just kind of a switch in the mentality of being like, hey, we're supposed to be this fun Caribbean beach bar and people are angry because they have to wear a mask. I'm sorry. You know, yelling at our staff, that was, you know, that's a thing that I think you're probably hearing for most restaurateurs around the country at this point, that it's been a little bit of a challenge. Whistling Andy, on the other hand, it's really trying to have, make that time and find the time to look at the really big picture as we're trying to export to four different countries. We're trying to grow our um, stateside sales as well. And more than anything is keeping up with Montana's demand, which has grown hugely in the last year. I mean, the support from the state of Montana for our products has been incredible. So it's just more anything is working on that balancing act. Yeah. You know, one of the things I think about is what makes you decide to open another business? I mean, you have a Raven, you have the boutique hotel, you know, you decide to open a distillery, but what, what drives you to continue to open a new one, start something new? Is there... Do you love the process of starting a new one or was it monetarily driven that you needed to, to get out there and, and do something bigger? What, what drives you to start all the new ones? For monetary gain, you probably don't start in the food and beverage industry. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's probably ever been. I think it's more of a passion for the craft of what we do and the, the community around us. Bonfire was more of a location situation. We're like, okay, this is a great spot. We, I felt like we could turn something in. And I had at that point wanted to do something that was the ability to be a little more farm to table focused versus the Raven. Our menu has been established for so long. We're not in a situation where we can change a lot of, you know, it doesn't make sense to change a lot of things versus bonfire allows us to have a very seasonal quarterly menu that keeps up with how the farmers are doing, what's coming in and out of Montana. You know, we try to, I think everything on the menu at this point, other than the shrimp is all sourced within, you know, an hour, hour and a half of the restaurant. Oh. So we definitely, you know, we have the yak, the emu, the, oh, I don't know, all the different, the bison, da, 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 everything locally coming out of here. So I think that was kind of one is wanting to start those. And then I think the curiosity, I mean, the distillery for, was definitely my husband's brainchild. And he really wanted something that wasn't in, a, you know, I think he's watched us go through the seasonality of the restaurants in a resort town and wanted a product that we could make year round and have a business that we could take out and bring to the world. Yeah, I mean, the, I think one of the reasons I looked for you, I found you on LinkedIn, uh, as I do for many of my guests. 
love LinkedIn. But we had, when we spent time in Big Fork, we had gone to Whistling Andy, really enjoyed it, <clears throat> really enjoyed the people there. I want to learn more about it. And, you know, I was just generally curious about the business of being in a distillery. And that's, I'm, I'm curious about that. I mean, it seems like 10 years ago, microbrewery, maybe even longer, microbreweries were, were popping up everywhere, right? Still very popular. Huh? Now I feel like these distilleries, you know, I don't know if micro distillery is the right term, but certainly they're popping up everywhere as well. And people are getting really into it and really passionate about, you know, the, the spirits that, that they're drinking. What, tell me about that business. Like how, is it expensive to start? Does it, you know, how, what, what do people not know when they're getting into that business? I think the two biggest takeaways when you're going to get into this industry. Well, first of all, let me clarify something. Within our industry, there's two different routes that people go. Where, and this is not a negative thing. I know that there's ones out there that are successful and some of them are owned by friends. But at the inside, you know, internally, we say the label makers. Where they don't actually have a physical plant where they're just buying, they're buying product. They're coming up with the concepts, very often the flavor profiles and so forth else, and then they're basically marketing a product. So we have a lot of those in the craft distillery or the craft distilling industry. And then the other half of us are, we're actually distilling, you know, milling, mashing, every, fermenting, everything in-house. You can always tell which products are being done. Some, some, a lot of distilleries in Montana are a combination of the two. It just depends on everybody's business model. So I think that that first thing is kind of look at where you want to do. Is this just because you want to market a product and you have an idea or do you actually want to get into the craft of making a product? Which I think if you sit down and talk to the guy, you know, Brian and Gabe and Patrick who actually make the product, I think that they tell you that all they do is clean because that's basically what I feel like all I ever see them do. And I'm like, <laughs> do we make product or are we just clean? Because every time, I mean, it's because it's, you know, that's the most important thing is making sure everything's crazy. So it seems like, I think that whole dream, I mean, we have people that come in and want to spend a week with us learning how to distill. And I think a lot of them leave being like, oh, I just spent a week cleaning. I'm like, yeah, we kind of get everything set up and then that's just what goes on. So that's, you know, that's probably a little bit. And then the other thing is you're taking such a leap of faith because it's against the law to own a still, to distill alcohol until you have a license. Mm. So it's not like you're home brewing or you're making wine at home and you're like, oh my gosh, I've gotten really good at this. People love my product. Da, da, da. You have to actually have, before you apply for your license, you need to have either rent or buy a piece of property and you have to have your money down on a still. And so those are two pretty big financial leaps of faith before you even know if you're going to be licensed or if you even are good at what you're doing. So there's a big leap of faith in this industry that doesn't happen in a lot of other, I guess I can't think what else really happened, what other places are like, you can't practice before you start. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> That's huge. Well, I spent, I brewed one batch of beer a few years back. And that's what I remember. I thought it was going to be very different, but all I ended up doing was cleaning, sanitizing, cleaning. And yes. I was like, well, I'd ra I'm much better at drinking than making it. And yes. uh, that's so soon thereafter, you know, I sold the whole thing for like 50 bucks at a garage sale. And hopefully it made someone happy. And it, it isn't, so how much, if you're going to buy a, a a, you know, still for like what you guys are using at the, the quantity that you're making, how much, I mean, that, that upcross investment isn't cheap either, right? I mean, this isn't. No, I mean, just the base still, and that's before your fermenters, your pumps, your tanks, the mill, the mash tank and everything else, but just the base still, you're going to be on the low end, probably 75 to 90,000. Right. And then from there, I mean, each tank, just, you know, obviously everything's pretty much everything's stainless steel. 
we're anywhere from 25 to 30,000 for your mash, you know, another 10 for milling. And then fermenters are kind of, and tanks are kind of all over the board, anywhere from three to 15,000 each. And then it seems like the part that's kind of crazy out there is when I kind of look at it, you know, when we start our original budget, and even when we're, as we're growing, we just put a new mash tank, we're getting ready to get a new still, is all those little, the hoses, the fittings, and all these little things, it's just like, oh, there's another 5,000 out the door. So it's a, it's a very cash intense to begin, without a doubt. Yeah. And I, from what I've talked to, because I'll, you know, talk to people when I stop by distillers, one of my favorite things to do you know, you can't start with bourbons, right? Bourbons and whiskeys generally need no. age. So you have to start. What's the order in which most, most distilleries kind of start pumping out their product? So most of the time what you're going to start with, I mean, we were probably a little different than a lot of them. You're going to start with gin or vodka. Hmm. They don't have any aging tea. They don't have any, you know, there's no, well, I shouldn't say that. We are aging gins, but your baseline gin, you know, our cucumber, our pink peppercorn, and our vodka, none of the, they don't have to go into barrels. So they go from tank to, if, you know, they go from distill into a mixing tank to dilute them or whatever with the water, and then they go into the bottle versus things that are either aging in stainless steel, which is our hibiscus coconut rum, or the bourbons, the whiskeys, and now we're coming out with aged gins, and those all sit in the tanks for, or barrel, I'm sorry, tanks, barrels for, you know, anywhere from a year to five, six years for us, obviously at different people, longer time frames. Yeah. And so when you started selling did you sell at a physical location and then get into a couple stores or what was the how, how did you start to build now i mean you're going into four countries which i'm very curious to hear about as well but what, what were the steps forward to get you to that point where now you're about to distribute in four countries i'm probably a little different the rest of our team probably would have taken it a little slower we came out with our first product which was our hibiscus coconut rum we did a small opening locally in big fork but then the next thing we did was we went to the Manhattan Cocktail Classic in New York City, and that's where we launched our Hibiscus Coconut Rum. Mm-hmm. And within the six months that followed, the six months that followed that, we were able to pick up a pretty good chunk of press across the country from, nas- from awards to national press. From there, we um, launched into Washington State, uh, Nevada, and New Jersey. And so those were the three states we really concentrated and, and on. And then from there, we've been working, I've been working with the USDA and discus and the you know the montana import export and the montana department of commerce commerce on bringing our products to markets outside of the u.s so it's kind of been a stage throughout the years but right off the bat we were always interested in trying to have the product be not only in montana but outside of the state yeah awesome and how long has it been when did you actually start whistling andy this is our 10-year anniversary this year. Ah, we, hey, congratulations. Yeah, I know. I'm really <laughs> excited. It's been because we had all these amazing things planned, and then it was just like, gosh, do we throw celebrations? Do we do, which we're, you know, we're going we're gonna to take the conservative road on that and just have, you know, different bottle releases that Gabe and Brian have been working on for years. So we have a bottle and bond coming out for our 10-year. We have a five-year-old whiskey we're doing another spiced rum. So we're just doing some special releases starting about the middle of November through middle of January to celebrate our 10-year anniversary. But yeah, we're really excited. It's, it's definitely it's been an interesting business and thrilled to death we made it 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that is exciting. I mean, you know, it's funny as I always reflect on, because I use it all, I say it all the time, and then I have to remind myself all the time is that everyone greatly overestimates what they can do in one year, um, but underestimate what they can do in 10 would you say looking back in the last 10 years, you'd say that was accurate? That is so accurate. And I don't, I've never thought about it like that, but that's very, very true. Yeah. Cause we always think we're going to be highly successful in the short term. And then we're like, Oh, wait a minute. 
if you actually think no. about it, this is like a 10 year vision, 20 year vision, then you- I know even when you do those business plans and they're so well laid out, you're like, oh, we'll be profitable in three years or five years. <laughs> right. And then you're just like, hmm, still having ramen, year three, great. <laughs> yeah, so. right. Oh man. What, out of curiosity, what countries are you guys getting into? What are the four countries that you're talking about? Um, so we launched into Taiwan last December. Ooh. We had our, we were supposed to be in South Africa and Japan this last spring due to COVID. Those are getting both pushed off, but they look like they'll happen again, probably in the first or second quarter of 2021. And so South Africa, Australia, Taiwan, and Japan are the four countries we've been working with. Awesome. And what, why those? It seems like a kind of a random clumping. No, it is a random. <laughs> it is a random. Japan's one that both my husband and I, just because of their workmanship, their craftsmanship, we spend a lot mm. of time over there with the distillery and have just have a huge love for the way they do business. They've, ha- they've been really supportive of the products. So for that reason, that's the country. That's one of the reasons we looked at Japan. Taiwan is, outside of Scotland, the biggest whiskey market on the planet. They are geeky really? above and beyond. They're just whiskey scotch geeks. It's it's the it's the coolest alcohol place I've ever been. Like they're so into it. Every Brian taught seminars. Every single one of them was sold out. Standing room. I mean, we did everything via translation. It was it was absolutely amazing. Our distributor there is phenomenal. But they're just they have a passion about whiskey that's completely. It's just unlike anything we've ever seen. That's and really South Africa, yeah, yeah. It's super. It's just a really cool spot in the world. And South Africa, that's came from. You know, I have a long passion and studies in African studies, but the state of Montana has really been actively working with South Africa on bringing Montana products to South Africa. And we're excited to, Canon from the state of Montana has been kind of heading that up. And we're really excited to continue on that venture. And then Discus, I'm on the National Craft Advisory Board with them. And we did a trip to South Africa with Discus in, what, not last year, the year before. I keep getting mixed up how this all Last year's a little blurry, or this year. So the year before, and yeah, I think there's a, it's definitely an emerging market, and so there's some different funding on a national grant scale for that that we'll look at. And so yeah, South Africa looks good, and then Australia has just been, it's just an interesting market. They're kind of seeking out unique products, and that kind of made sense to us. Europe at this point, with all the tariff wars, it's just too vital, or, and same with China. Both of those markets are too up and down on a international scale for somebody our size to be playing in that game right now because the tariffs can literally we could have a container of alcohol going over and the tariffs could pop in and change the game without us having any control over it so the four countries we picked are good safe bets for our size of distillery have you seen the documentary scotch Mm -hmm. didn't they highlight taiwan in there as well like that was a hot yeah Okay. It's no, their scotch thing. It's it's incredible. Like we were at Whiskey Fest last year in December, I guess, and I mean it's packed to the gills. And there's bottles. I mean, we were with two distillers that own one of them owns a distillery, and the other is their brand ambassador for a different distillery in Scotland. And they were like, some of these products are never even released in our country. Hmm. Like people, they bring their specialties down, and I mean, it was it's pretty crazy. Yeah, they're. You know, what was interesting about that documentary. Not to get too sidetracked, was that. It was, there was so much cost and margin put in if you buy scotch in Scotland that it was actually cheaper to get it outside of the country. You know, you couldn't get it in the, dist- <laughs> in the distillery, you know, at the same cost you could in like the United States or somewhere else. It was really fascinating to me about <laughs> how, how the country or wherever you are really dictates the pricing for these products. And I imagine you're learning at a very fast rate about 
you know, some of these international pricing strategies, right? It's super fascinating. I mean, even when you're in Japan and you're trying to buy Japanese whiskey, we found it was, I'm like, we had much better deals when we went to Vietnam, which we know are hand carried likely over, or when mm. we were in Taiwan. It's very, it's bizarre how that the whole international pricing structure works and why, you know, we'll look at our products and I'm like, because, you know, the it's not like we're going in at a certain tax rate, like what the whiskey is, what the rum's taxed at and what the gin, they're three different, very, very different tax rates versus for us, the rum we're finding is a rough one for both Taiwan and for Australia because of sugarcane and how that, you know, how the sugar trades on the international market. So those two are taxed much higher than our whiskeys or our gins. So yeah, every market's very different on how your import or your export taxes. And Lisa, it sounds like you've done, you guys do a lot of traveling and you mentioned earlier in the show that you do it for business. Which business is it that's driving all this international travel or is it, or is it mostly just for fun? Brian and I definitely had done a lot of traveling to culinary hotspots across the globe before, but the last five to seven years has been all focused on the distillery. So we've traveled sometimes on our own, but a lot of times with, um, like I said, the USDA and which the United States Department of Agriculture, I'm assuming everybody, I don't know, you never know. And then Discus, which is the Distilled Spirits Council of America. So those are the two groups that we've done a lot of traveling with, as well as some of the Montana Department of Commerce and International, their international export team. So we've kind of reached out and those are the groups that we travel with. They're really instrumental in setting things up when we're in country with distributors, with meetings and so forth. And so, yeah, we've, we've been trying to pop around and spread the love of Montana spirits. Yeah, that's fantastic. I appreciate it. You know, I, I joke, but it's not really a joke. I've really taken COVID as an opportunity to increase my bourbon game. And perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been learning a lot. You know, it's really, it's a fascinating world and easily, I mean, you know, it's, it's fun on both angles. You get to educate yourself and, you know, you get a nice head change at the end of every day. Do you, <laughs> how do you feel about the world? This is kind of a random question. How do you feel about the world of celebrity chefs? How do I feel about the world of celebrity chefs? Yeah. Um, I guess at the end of the day, it has been a very good thing for our industry. Because I look at it where, when I definitely started in this 20 years ago, or 25, you adds 25, 26 years ago, being a chef wasn't an admiral position. It was something that was just, you know, I think it's elevated and hopefully it's given our industry some respect. So a lot of these people that have gotten out there, I mean, not everybody's great. Some of them are a little cheesy, but that's just their, you know, that's how they're getting their point or their process or whatever across. I mean, I think of somebody like Anthony Boudin, who has probably been incredibly inspirational to so many of us that, you know, it's that work hard, play hard. And then at the end of the day, are you doing good for your community and how are you giving back? And so I, I think at the end of the day, they're a good thing. And I, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there. We could probably argue that to, with my chef buddies to the end of the day, but I think most of us respect, respect people for what their craft is and however they got there to a position where they're quote unquote, a celebrity chef, you know, good on them. You're spreading the word that we're working hard. We believe in the food that we're putting out and the process and this whole lifestyle of being a restaurant, being in a restaurant. Anthony Bourdain is one of my favorite. I mean, if you know, people ask you that question, if you could sit at a table and you could have five people from, you know, any time, he'd be at my table. He's definitely at my table. And, you know, I've watched all of his episodes of, you know, uh, Parts Unknown and all the shows. And I read his books. I still... He's still yeah. inspirational. I mean, I, he's so inspirational. I mean, every single time we're getting ready to go back to Japan or Taiwan 
or South, any, literally any place. I always am popping in, rewatching his reruns to be like, oh, I need to check that out. Or, you know, a lot of times it's just a little snippet that he's walking by and he's like, oh, remember this ramen shop? And I'm like, oh, I have to go check that. So I think he's been an inspiration to so many of us that love to, you know, travel for food or, you know, and having food being focused in it. Yeah. 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 It's really cool. And it's, you know, ultimately the messaging is, you know, food kind of connects everybody, right? We all eat. It does. And it has such a, it has such a, it's an easy way into middle ground and understanding and investigating new cultures. And you did a great job of of putting that together for us in storylines. Oh yeah. And making sure that we see them, you know, the, the basis of it too, it's not walking in with a, you know, a white tablecloth and some of the best service and some of the best chefs Mm -hmm. in the world. It's also that little food stall in the market where somebody's been grinding seven days a week for 15 years doing the same thing over and over. And they just happen to make, you know, the best in the world of something. So that little, I mean, one of the little teeny places he talked about years ago was this tiny little Michelin star dump, like two or three star Michelin dumpling shop in little teeny neighborhood in Japan or Tokyo, sorry. And to this day, we go back every single time we're there. And every single time I'm there, they blow me away. I mean, it just blows my mind. And I walk out paying $25 for some of the coolest food I've had in months. I love it. Yeah, it's uh, Japan was where I was supposed to be actually this month. We were going to go to Japan in November uh, this year. And then everything kind of shut down. So I guess I'll have to wait another year. But I'm dying, Lisa. I'm dying to get to Japan. Not only <laughs> well, we for the, the culture, but the skiing. Skiing's amazing there. The skiing, I know. The skiing's amazing. We spent three weeks, almost the whole month of November there last year. Every day on Facebook, it keeps popping up. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Ah. Yeah, we, I, we spent November in Japan last year. We rented a car and brought Brian, my husband's mom, with us. And literally just road tripped across the country. And it was amazing. It's such a fascinating, incredible. Like, there's so many places I want to go back and spend time at. Okay. Well, now I know. Now I know who to go to when we start planning our trip. You're, you're the one. Shifting gears a little bit, I, I, there was something that we talked about pre-recording, Lisa, and I think it's really important messaging for people to have. And we talked about, you know, during these times, especially as business owners and entrepreneurs, you know, and God, I'm so tired of using these words, but having to pivot and shift and, and do all the things we've had to do, right? Just to survive and, and <clears throat> hopefully set ourselves up to thrive in the, the other word I hate is the new normal and whatever, whatever's happening right now, right? you know, is, is self-care and as you put it, giving yourself some grace, expand on that. What is, what are some of the realizations you've had as far as, Hey, you know, take it easy on yourself. I think for me and I, you know, and I definitely ebb and flow on how that works in my life is, you know, sometimes it's, I had, I do, I make the time for the meditation, the yoga, you know, getting up in the morning, listening to Elliot's mindset, like that's a phenomenal way you know, to start your day. There's these different, you know, there's these amazing people out there that a good 10, 15 minutes can change your day. And I'm finding that a lot of times I get in a horrible habit of just waking up with my mind going like, I need to go, 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 go. What about this? What about that? And taking some time to stop, you know, having a cup of coffee with my husband in the morning, watching the dog run around. We just procured four dwarf, Nigerian dwarf goats. And so that's been kind of part of my new morning routine is taking the goats for a walk. And everybody's like, what do they do? And I'm like, they just bring me joy. I love them. (laughs) I've never had a farmyard. You know, I've never had, we have eight chickens and four goats now. This is all within the last, you know, three or four months. And so taking the time to, you know, slow down instead of, you know, staying late at work last night, I'm like, oh, I need to get home before it's dark out. 
So I'm not out there by myself with the grizzly bears and mountain lions and feed the goats and let the chickens out and do my little thing. So taking some time to do things that make ourselves happier and giving ourselves the grace to do that and not having that guilt that we're not doing enough or we're not working hard enough. And maybe it was just time for us all to slow down. Our industry is so go, 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 as are a lot of other people's. And I think taking that time to be like, everything's going to be there tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. So two follow-up questions on that. Number one, when, where does someone find a Nigerian dwarf goat? Well, I found mine on Craigslist from, and I don't know if you know Nikki, she runs the um, Glacier Cons- or the oh, Glacier Park Conservancy. And then Nikki Carl. Eisinger? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do. So, okay, so you know Nikki and Carl. And poor Carl did not know that the goats, the, they have 21 other goats. So these four goats, these four boys were on the Craigslist. I was like, hmm that looks like Carl's Cadillac that used to deliver beer. And so I sent him a text and he's like, I didn't know the boys were for sale. And I'm like, they're not, she's giving them away. So we, yeah, I talked to Nikki and she just wanted to make sure these four had a really good home. And hopefully we've given them, given them a great home and we love them to death. And so, yeah, they drove, we drove up and picked up the four goats and now they live here with us. That's awesome. Second question was what, if you could paint your, your ideal morning, how you would start your day? What does that look like? If I could, I would be up before this, I would come awake before the sun and take the time to meditate and then go into a good long hour long yoga practice and then some super dank coffee and then off to work. Maybe a little goat walk if I have time in the morning. If not, I'll come back and do that in the afternoon. But definitely, you know, starting with, and I'm still after, I don't know, 30 years of trying to meditate, I'm still a 15, 20 minute max before my mind starts wandering just maybe who I am, but starting out with meditation, going into yoga, having some great coffee, and then starting my day. When you say super dank coffee, is that a brand or is that just mm. you refer to coffee? <laughs> no, um, actually, I don't. That's what I was just drinking again this morning. There's a coffee roaster. We use field heads at all the restaurants, but there's a coffee roaster a friend of ours sent us from Doma and they have a coffee co- or a, oh, a blend called super dank. So a bunch of us have kind of got into it. It's a little high octane for start your morning pretty good. Oh, I like it. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they're a good roaster. Coffee in the morning. Yeah. Um, so super dank, super dank is a super strong coffee to start your day with. Yeah. I find that an open schedule in the morning after I kind of do my morning routine and some really strong coffee for about two to three hours. I can accomplish more in two to three hours than most people can accomplish all day with the right caffeine buzz. It's, it's a yeah, the caffeine thing. and probably the, one of my game changers – Oh, and this was a baby bathwater deal as I met Dan Clark. He has uh, Brain. Have you heard of Brain FM? No. So Brain FM is a, it's an app musical deal that focus sleep, creative, different, you know, different genres, what you're trying to do. For me, putting that on with my headphones after some coffee in an hour, I'm literally finding that like I'm whipping through something that should have been three hours or used to be three hours is now taking an hour because I'm that focused on it. So that's kind of been my big game changers kind of looking at my day and being like, okay, how can I get three or four hour long brain FN sessions in? And then at the end of the, after that, I've kind of done what I really had to do for the day and everything else is maintaining. Same. So, and you said it's brain.fm? Yeah, bra- yeah brain dot, brain.fm. Okay, cool. So right now, you know, it's uh-huh. November 10th, 2020. The election is supposedly done. Thank God. We'll see. But we're heading into, you know, the holidays and then 
we're all hoping for a very fresh start to a positive 2021, right? When you look at all the businesses that you have and everything you're, you're going through right now and in managing, what, what's the biggest need that you have right now within your business or businesses? Businesses. I think right now, I feel like I'm putting together a really neat team for the restaurants and it's going to take me three or four months to get everybody <clears throat> kind of cultivated where we want to be and build that culture. But I feel like I'm really going in the right direction there. So I'm pretty pretty happy with where I'm at with the two restaurants and the hotel as far as how we're going to be looking for 2021. The distillery at this point, we just had <clears throat> a really neat guy up last week to interview for a couple of days to try to really grow the product across the country. And then probably my biggest challenge is wrapping my head around how much of the e-commerce online data, that part of the business, that online e-commerce side, how much do I need to know to make sure that I'm hiring and getting the right people in place? We have a PR firm that I know is excellent. We're using an online distribution group, which I think is excellent at this point, but I know there's so much more to it. So my, probably my biggest thing is figuring out how much education do I need to have on the e-commerce side of this whole picture versus how much do I just need to understand and hire the right people? Because I feel like there's a lot out there and a lot of times I'm like, wait, are we split testing? Or what does the data mean? What does, you know, the, there's so many terms and words and the whole thing. And I'm trying to make sure that I'm up enough on it, but I don't want to dive down the rabbit hole. It's just, I know that's not going to be my forte. So that's probably my biggest need right now is understanding the e-commerce side of the distillery. Yeah. And that's, that's an interesting thing as a leader and a founder of a business like this is, you know, you want to know enough to make an educated decision on who to work with, but you don't want to go down that yes. rabbit hole because your time is better spent somewhere else. Right. And it takes a long time. It takes you so long. I think to, or for me, it took me so long to get to that point where hire people that are better than you at this, at this and this and this. Mm. So versus I think I spent my first, you know, a good 20 years being like, I have to be the best at this before, you know, I have to train everybody, I have to teach everybody. And now I'm realizing, no, there's people out there that that's what they do. And they really, really, you know, they do an excellent job at it. So I think giving your, you know, letting yourself realize as an entrepreneur that you're not going to be the best at every single part of your business. There's other people that are better at the financial part or better at the, you know, as long as you have the creative and the culture drive behind you, I think you're going to be okay. Yeah. And the beauty of that mindset going into it is it actually takes a lot of pressure off too. And it, it allows you to be, you know, one of, in, a, in another podcast on another show, I have Josh Hillis said, you know, in, in reference to the fitness and health industry is like, just remember that you're probably only better at your clients than one at one or two things and that they're better at everything else. And when you take that mindset, first of all, it made me laugh hysterically. That's a, yeah, yeah. So that's fantastic. But it's true. And if you go out like that, you're also just much more fun to be around and you know where your strengths are. And that's one of the things of a leader is you have to really know what your strengths are and then know where your weak points are and where your blind spots are and, and, and hire appropriately. So yeah, well, Lisa, it's, it's an absolute pleasure having the show. I mean, so much business experience and you've earned it the hard way through much of it too. And, you know, I love kind of the, the book of business you put together and, you know, for people who are listening, if they want to get in touch with you and maybe they want to talk to you about e-commerce or they think they can offer value to one of your businesses, or maybe just give an interview you, where do they go? Where do you send people? Give us the goods. The goods easiest one for me is always my email, which is lisa at sleepeatdrink.com. Awesome. Simple enough. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure. Uh, I'm going to go look for a nice bottle of Whistling Andy this afternoon and cheers to you. Ladies and gentlemen, Lisa Clotier. 
Hey, everybody. This is your host, Eric Malzone. Don't leave yet. I have a few more requests for you. So if you got value out of this podcast, I ask you to do a few things. Number one, go to wherever you're listening, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and go ahead and subscribe to the show. Number two, while you're there, if you feel that we earned it, please leave us a nice review. Number three, share it. Whether it be social media, email, texting, whatever it may be, I'm sure you know somebody who would get value out of this episode just like you did. So please go ahead and share it. And that's how we get the word out. So it's really valuable and super appreciative. It only takes a minute of your time. Next, if you know of somebody, including yourself, who would be a great guest for the show, please head on over to level5mentors.com, L-E-V-E-L, the number five, mentors.com. Get in touch with me. Let me know what you're thinking. Uh, Make an introduction, whatever it may be. You can also get me directly in my email, which is eric, E-R-I-C, at level5mentors.com. Lastly, if you just want to chat, you want to find out more, if you want to expand on some ideas, I love hearing from the audience. So go ahead and hit me up on social media. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. You also have my email already. So I love to hear from you. I'm always looking for ways to improve the show and I'm always looking to have great conversations. So don't hesitate to reach out. And once again, thank you for listening to the Black Diamond podcast and you can expect a lot more from us.